BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, drug overdose deaths rose dramatically in 2020. According to CDC data, California saw more than 40% increase. It's the devastating effect of what journalist Sam Quinones calls the synthetic drug era. Street drugs, fentanyl and methamphetamine, derived from chemicals instead of plants, and both frighteningly potent and deadly. Quinones has written about this shift to synthetic drugs in his new book, The Least of Us, and about the people and communities trying to recover. He joins us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In 2015, when Sam Quinones' award-winning book, Dreamland, about America's opiate epidemic came out, a different and troubling phenomenon was already brewing. Opiate addicts were switching to fentanyl and particularly potent forms of methamphetamine. That's because as pain pill prescribing by doctors was falling, drug traffickers with access to the world's chemical markets were filling the void with dangerous synthetic drugs, drugs so potent that overdose deaths spiked, hitting record levels last year. Quinones' new book on the impact of the synthetic drug era is called The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Sam Quinones, thanks so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. I've heard you say that you didn't think you'd be writing about another incredibly destructive drug epidemic after your book, Dreamland, which was about opioids and, and heroin. Why not? Uh, yes, I did not. Because, uh, well, one thing was I was exhausted. I mean, Dreamland was an, a, a, just a huge amount of work. Um, I saw it as this big story. I saw it as a story beyond drugs, really about who we were as Americans, destruction of community, you know, what we'd become as a country. But I was just exhausted. And really the main thing though was I just didn't know what, what was worse than heroin. You know, I was kind of thinking old school uh, at this time. I'd been a crime reporter for a lot of years, starting in Stockton, uh, California. And... Um, you know, I just didn't imagine anything uh, other than heroin, and then okay, I, was, I was wrong. Right. You were wrong, sadly, that uh, meth and fentanyl are worse, and you call this period the age of meth and fentanyl, the synthetic era, essentially. I, I want to break down these two different drugs because 
while they are both part of the synthetic era, they do have slightly different origin stories and impacts. And yeah. I'm wondering if we could actually start with meth, because what I'm thinking about is you know, back in the day when it became really hard to access cold medicines, right? right. Um, can you talk about the origins uh, of meth before we get sure. into how eventually the concoction changed? Yeah, uh, meth was invented by a Japanese researcher in around World War I. Uh, it was used by Nazi uh, troops in uh, the Third Reich. In fact, the entire Third Reich can safely be said to be on meth. Um, in the 60s, it was really, um, I guess, commercialized, so to speak, by biker gangs in California, Hells Angels, Altamont. Uh, concert with Rolling Stones was kind of an example of that, uh, of these guys, uh, uh, you know, uh, hyped up on, on meth. Um, in the 1980s, uh, that they were uh, effectively erased as competition by the Mexicans who began to learn how to make it with a, with a chemical called ephedrine. Uh, ephedrine is actually a very easy drug to turn into meth, very efficient. It's almost whatever amount of ephedrine you have, that's how much meth you can, you can make. And... Um, the Mexicans, beginning in the late 80s, in the San Diego area, Tijuana area, then down into, um, uh, further into Mexico, Michoacan, uh, Sinaloa, uh, Guadalajara area, uh, began to really kind of um, move uh, to industrialize it. They had labs up here in California, too, in the Central Valley, in the Riverside area, and so on. But increasingly, law enforcement here was very aggressive, and they all retreated kind of to Mexico, and uh, where they really made industrial quantities of the stuff, but they never were able to produce more meth than they, you know, they only, they, only, they, they could only amount, produce the amount of, uh, that they had of ephedrine, and ephedrine was still kind of limited, even though they could get tons of it a year, it still wasn't enough. And so, so they, they were able to produce enough to cover much of the Western United States, but no more. Um, ephedrine meth house had a, was appealing to a lot of folks because it was a kind of a euphoric uh, party drug, big in the gay community, um, very much about uh, people and being around others and partying and staying up and staying up and staying up. Um, and, and then, you know, this methamphetamine um, method of making it uh, changed down in Mexico, and that is a crucial story for what we're facing now. Um, the Mexican government made ephedrine illegal, and um, the Mexican trafficking world had to then shift. They shifted to a new method of making it that did not require just one chemical, could, could use a variety of chemicals, a lot of different hacks for, for making this kind of, of meth, but these chemicals were all legal, industrial, toxic, very easily available. The government couldn't really control them, and this allowed them to make more meth than anybody, just, just staggering quantities of this drug. You said that uh, before they were able to make tons of ephedrine-based meth. How would you compare the quantity of this new concoction of meth that's derived mainly from chemicals to uh, meth that was using ephedrine? Uh, I would say that they're, they're, they seem to be, from reporting I've done, very, very different in effect. Um, particularly when used uh, uh, in significant quantities, they seem to. Ephedrine meth is a party drug, kind of as I said, um, keeps you up for for days, but you're always wanting to be around others and partying and jabbering away. Um, the 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 new meth made with this precursor known as P2P, phenyl two propanone, is a very sinister thing. Kind of turns you inward. 
makes you, uh, it brings along with it, is accompanied very often by symptoms of just very scary schizophrenia, rapid onset schizophrenia, par heightened paranoia, florid uh, hallucinations, uh, you can't really be around other people, it's very much inward looking, unlike ephedrine meth, it's, it's, um, it's one that makes it very difficult for you to be around other people and follow rules, so therefore what it also creates is very quickly um, uh, homelessness, and, and, and even people unable, once, once they are homeless, unable to really even be in shelters. My opinion is that, uh, I think I'm convinced that this, from my reporting, that, that uh, the tent encampments that we have now um, are really primarily driven by, by meth methamphetamine uh, up and down the West Coast and really all across the country. Um, mm -hmm. the, the tent is a perfect uh, lodging, you might say, for, for someone who is truly uh, rendered mentally ill by this new methamphetamine. Because if the world outside is scary, uh, this a tent is a perfect place for you to be to kind of seek refuge from it. Can you tell the story of uh, Eric Barrera from Temecula, California, who had been a user of meth before and had noticed the change. And, and what happened to him when he took the different PTP he was, meth? Yeah, yeah, sure. He was a, a very, I was extraordinarily lucky to meet Eric. Before that, I really thought the story about methamphetamine was about the capacity of production down in Mexico. And certainly that is a major part of the story. Uh, that they, they were able to produce so much meth that the meth starts marching across the country and, and reducing prices by, you know, 80% all the way up into uh, New England, which never had any meth at all, and that's where we stand today. Then I met Eric, and Eric said, yeah, you know, he told me his story. He'd been using meth since he got out of the Marines, 2001. Uh, he, he used meth because he was kind of depressed. It li lightened his spirits, and he wanted to kind of uh, uh, just, it was a partying kind of thing, and, and you never really ha saw his life destroyed necessarily. It wasn't a good life necessarily, but it wasn't, he had a job and a wife and a house. And then he said to me, I remember we were sitting at a pizza uh, place, outside a pizza place in Pasadena, he said to me, um, and then in 2009, I felt the meth change. And I stopped him right there, I said, 2009? He says, yeah, and that meant something to me because in 2008, the Mexican government, that was the year the Mexican government had, had made uh, uh, ephedrine illegal, and so it was very difficult now to make meth with that. He began to tell me after that, I never felt that euphoria ever again. On the contrary, I felt this very sinister uh, paranoia, and I met the first night I used it, I began stabbing the walls of my girlfriend's house uh, because I thought she was hiding a man inside the walls, and I never felt that euphoria again. On the contrary, it was very much... Uh, inward looking. I was me and my porn and my car. And um, eventually, after years of using meth, he had never been homeless until this new meth. He starts using this new meth. All his buddies began to call it the weirdo dope. Um, and, and he said to me, when I met him, he was uh, sober, been f sober five years, was a homeless outreach coordinator. So we went into tent encampments looking for vets who might need, might need uh, help with housing or treatment. And he said, and, and everywhere around me now, all around me are people in the same state of mental decomposition that I was feeling for several years on this, on this new meth. You can't escape it. It's all over, everywhere. We're talking with Sam Quinones about his new book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl. 
and meth. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation if you have reactions to what Sam is describing or if you personally or your family member or someone in your community has experienced the effects of meth and fentanyl addiction and want to share that story, you can at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You've written that the uh, the chemicals that you can create P2P meth from are really broad. I mean, there's like racing fuel or uh, tanning, things that you can use for uh, photography, just all kinds of different kinds of chemicals. Is that in part why it does so much damage to the brain, Sam? Well, I'm not sure. The, the truth is what I'm telling you is what my street reporting has shown me. There's been no studies about this. There's no neuroscience um, um, journal reports, peer-reviewed, mice studies, rat studies. This is something that, that really nobody has really ever written about. Um, and so the exact mechanism through which all this happens, I confess I don't. I'm not, I don't know, nor am I in a position to know. I can tell you what my re- reporting showed after I met Eric um, I thought to myself, if the meth is all over the country and the meth created this problem with him, it stands to reason that maybe this is happening all over the country. Maybe I need to call people to find out what the story is in, say, uh, uh, Portland or Albuquerque. Or so. And so I began that. I began to call people who, had, who were on the ground working with this, sometimes recovering addicts, cops, uh, drug counselors, a lot of those, uh, addiction specialists, all these kinds of things, who are at the very kind of low ground level to, and, and hear their stories. And what struck me is that these stories kept repeating very scary stuff, very weird uh, tales of, of schizophrenia. As soon as the sh- meth showed up in their, in their community, say in the Midwest in, in, in 16 or 17, all of a sudden they began to see this. Never had homeless befo- homelessness before, and now they've got a whole, whole population of it. So why exactly this is, this is happening, I'm going to leave to people who can study it neuroscientifically. Uh, yes. at, uh, at this point, I, I, I'm, I'm just telling you reporting stuff. Right. The effects are very clear to you. We'll have more with Sam Quinones after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Sam Quinones. His previous book includes Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. His latest book is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl 
and meth. And it's about the devastating impacts of these highly potent synthetic drugs. And you can join the conversation if you have questions for Sam or if you're familiar with the impact of these drugs, either on you personally or someone you know or in your community. If you have thoughts on how to respond to the synthetic drug epidemic, you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us forum at kqed.org. Sam, can you talk about the major advantage that synthetic drugs like this have for drug traffickers, just in terms of their ability to to make them uh, and, and their ability to smuggle them? Sure. Um, and they began, you know, the Mexican drug, drug world uh, really began with uh, plants. They were all farmers. The, the earlier, earliest drug traffickers in Mexico, they're all farmers, ranchers. And so it was very much a plant-based uh, approach to drug smuggling. Um, however, as time went on, um, uh, their later generations uh, came to understand that synthetics uh, offer enormous benefits over growing and, and drugs. First of all, uh, you don't need land anymore. You just uh, you don't need um, sunlight. You don't need seasons, rainfall, irrigation, farmers, harvesting, all of that kind of stuff. You um, all you really need now is um, access to shipping ports. And they have uh, two uh, shipping ports on the western side of the United States, of Mexico. I'm sorry, uh, which is the, really the kind of the drug uh, uh, producing regions of Mexico. Um, and they have two shipping ports there, and through which now shipping ports allow you access to the entire world's chemical market, essentially China, India, but also other countries uh, uh, as well. Um, and so with these now, you don't need seasons. You don't need to wait until the sunlight's right. You can make these, uh, these drugs year-round uh, as, uh, as long as you have the chemicals uh, to produce them. And this is what they understood. They learned this first with methamphetamine in the 90s. They began to think, oh yeah, began to think beyond the plant so to speak, when they began to industrialize methamphetamine uh, down there in Mampatzingan and Guadalajara and places like that in the, mid, in the 1990s. And then fentanyl comes along and it fits what, right in, immediately right in, in their wheelhouse. They, mm. they know, oh yeah, just like methamphetamine is something we can make, we can make a heroin substitute now that, that, is, um, that is, has all the benefits, easy to smuggle, lower risk because you're not exposed to helicopters and that kind of thing, like with marijuana and so on. And so they begin to, the, all of this is part of this gradual shift that's been going on maybe 15, 20 years now in the, in the Mexican trafficking world. And these labs weren't being basically raided and people being caught? Well, yeah. They, the Mexican military has raided these labs, but somehow they never are able to find anybody to arrest at them. And I think this is a big part of the problem, that people know that they, they might lose their, their, their chemicals, but they won't go to prison. And I think down in Mexico, particularly in the Sinaloa area, in the, in the Michoacan area, parts of Jalisco and, and Nayarit and Durango, people understand that there's not a personal cost to pay. For, for doing this. And so therefore, part of the glut that we're seeing of these drugs is due to the fact that a lot of people down there understand that fact, 
that they, they're not going to pay that price so long, particularly as they're connected up with some larger network of, of traffickers, and therefore um, more and more and more people are, are getting it. We, we think of these groups as cartels. It's an interesting thing. They're not cartels. Cartels form to reduce supply to force price up. The opposite is happening uh, in Mexico. There's a plethora of su supply of both these drugs, and it's because there's not this deep control, this border director's control. It's really kind of a wild free market of producers, all of whom see that there's no consequence to do this. Well, if there is so much of it, as you alluded to earlier, the price has gone down significantly, the value of it, right? And so, for yes. example, so so why wouldn't that then make people want to move to something different, something more lucrative? Because there, there probably isn't anything. I think we've we've legalized marijuana in the United States uh, largely. So marijuana used to be the drug that all of those guys got into when they were kids, and and now that's really not. There's not much market for that. Cocaine, they have to buy it from the Colombians, you know. And so what else is there for them for them to do? M methamphetamine comes along, particularly, but both of these drugs come along um, just as we are legalizing marijuana. And so a lot of folks just kind of wanted to shift out of marijuana, well, they're not going to go drive a cab or, or milk cows or uh, what have you. They're going, to, they're going to look for something that will make them something like the money that they were making before. Also, there's a kind of a glut mentality frequently in the Mexican economy. I saw this when I lived down in Mexico for 10 years um, and wrote two books about the country, that, that once, once your price drops, that doesn't mean that you go on to something else. It means that you double down on what you already know how to make. And I think that's really what's going on down in, in Mexico now. And can you talk about now fentanyl? You, you've mentioned how fentanyl is part of this, how the fact that uh, it's, it's one of those drugs that can easily be smuggled, in part because you need very little of it to be able to get a really significant high. So switching gears to fentanyl, first, can you explain um, the difference in terms of how deadly fentanyl is versus the P2P meth that we're seeing? Sure. Well, methamphetamine, of course, is a stimulant. You don't really uh, overdose on a, on a stimulant. You may decay. I think that's more likely the case. And in this case, you may be driven mad by it. But um, it's not like an opioid, which will shut down your, your brain's breathing orders to the, to the rest of the body, and, and, and you'll just basically suffocate to death, which is what an, uh, uh, an opioid overdose essentially, essentially is. And so a fentanyl is an opioid. It's a depressant. Um, it's actually a terrific drug. People need to understand this. If you have been in the hospital having surgery, fentanyl has revolutionized anesthesiology. It's a magnificent contribution to our, 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 our medical world. Of course, when used in the proper uh, medical uh, way, it's not so, so it's a d highly dangerous when it's used, by, used on the street. Um, but but, but it's, it, one of the benefits of it is that it is so potent. And it, you're in and out of, 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 of it very quickly, you, 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 you know. And so, so um, because it's so potent, traffickers figured out, gee, we don't need to make a lot of this stuff to, to have it be a substitute for, for, for heroin. Plus, it will take people's tolerances up to very high. So we don't need, we, we, you know, heroin's no longer really uh, necessary. And I think, in fact, what fentanyl has done is basically crowd out heroin, and soon there won't be really any heroin on the streets of America, because fentanyl is just so much more efficient, so much better an option for traffickers, not necessarily for 
for users. And so you can, but you can uh, overdose very, very easily on this stuff with the smallest bad mix. This fentanyl, you'll die. And so fentanyl is really the first time that the trafficking world has seen its high, very in just enormous profits tied to their own ability to mix the drug. They rarely have you seen this in, in the drug trafficking world. Fentanyl is really the, the, the first time. The problem is, of course, they're not really good at it. They don't really know. And it's a very, very delicate task that a lot of traffickers and, and, and dealers aren't, aren't up to. In 2014, you wrote that a fentanyl gold rush began. And uh, as you said, part of the problem was the way drug dealers were mixing the drug with other drugs. Can you talk about this in the, the role of the magic bullet blender? Sure. Uh, the, first, the first supplies of fentanyl were really coming from China. Um, um, Mexico had figured, Mexican traffickers had figured out fentanyl back in 06 with a lab that they funded um, that they thought well, the guy was making uh, ephedrine for meth and turns out he was making fentanyl. He explains it to them. They're like, wow, okay, let's try that. But his lab is then busted. And so their, their fentanyl dreams kind of evaporate there. The Chinese begin to sell fentanyl uh, the chemical companies in that country uh, on the on the internet beginning 2013 14 people began to discover this is a this is a thing and they begin to send it over in the in the mails um, it, it comes to a lot of folks in the United States and these are folks who are uniformly um, uh, incapable of of of, uh, of blending this stuff even under the best situation but at the time circulating through a lot of this, the drug world in the United States, a low-level street drug world, was the idea that the best way to mix fentanyl was with a magic bullet blender. I think because it has that, that plastic dome uh, and it, set, it keeps you from breathing the fumes and so on. I suppose that's one reason why they figured this out. They thought it was a good idea. Uh, we have, in my house, a, a magic bullet blender. It's a fantastic little instrument. It's great for salsas and smoothies. It's just devastatingly bad for, for mixing fentanyl. And yet people kind of got this idea that this was how you should do it. It's bad for mixing fentanyl. One reason is because it's a blade and blades don't mix powder well. They mix liquids very, very well. And so people began to use this and other uh, tools like, you know, like uh, coffee grinders and this kind of thing. And the, the mix that they were, mixes that they were coming up with were awful. And you remember early days of fentanyl, perhaps 2015, right in there, 16, maybe you began to see these clusters of overdose, Cincinnati, 70 overdoses in a weekend, Huntington, West Virginia, same thing, that kind of thing. Really, it's all due to this horrible mixing capacity of the lowest level, the street dealers and maybe one level level up. And that is what led to the, a lot of the, the, the clusters of overdoses when we first began to see fentanyl enter the drug scene. Yes. Do you want to tell the story of Tommy Raw? Uh, Tommy Rao was a was a, a, um, a, a wonderful kid. I wish I'd have known him. I, his marvelous family. He got addicted to opioid painkillers because he was prescribed um, uh, uh, narcotic painkillers for for a carpal tunnel syndrome and for a wisdom tooth extraction. He spent 15 years, I believe it was. Um, addicted to first pills, then for a long time it was heroin. But again, this is the, the difference between heroin and fentanyl. He lived, he didn't have a great life, he was struggling with his addiction mightily throughout his, throughout his years, his family told me, but he lived. And then he didn't last um, two months, I don't think, in Akron, Ohio, he lived um, uh, after, after fentanyl entered the scene. This is the difference between fentanyl and heroin. You, it, there's no such thing on the street, really, as a long-term 
uh, fentanyl user, and they found him in a house room he was renting, uh, face down, uh, uh, having fallen off the toilet, uh, having essentially gone uh, uh, unconscious just moments after injecting uh, uh, fentanyl, I think it was, and 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 that and 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 he was found and he was found dead. He was it was one of these these situations where I think this is the 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 difference that you see that people don't last on fentanyl. And I believe that his parents said that he didn't even know that there was fentanyl in what he was no, and, been mixed and in early, with. Yes. Early on, exactly right. I mean, that, that's early on, most people don't have a clue that that's what they're using. Cocaine is right. laced with fentanyl. That People begin dying uh, from that. That's really uh, why we have a large numbers of African-Americans now dying from opioids. Because they really are, are African American dealers have figured out, hey, if I put fentanyl in my cocaine, I will eventually develop a customer who's an opioid addict and has to buy from me every day. Of course, people are naive to these drugs; they don't they don't have the tolerance, and frequently um, uh, they they die. And so this, but but this mixing and so on is something that began to happen early on with fentanyl because the supplies were so great, because it was so cheap, and because dealers saw that it could boost whatever drug it was they were selling. And I was so struck by CDC data from last year that saw basically overdose deaths rising dramatically in every racial group and age group, um, Black, Latinx, uh, Native American, Asian American, all populations all seeing the highest proportional increases compared to 2019. And additional stats showing that while more white people had higher rates of drug overdose deaths than black people through 2013, that that gap has disappeared in 2019. And I'm sure what you are yeah. describing is part of this process. The I would think it's, it's pretty much the process. It, it seems to me that, that, there's, that, that, that this is why this is happening. The fentanyl in the drug stream is, is dealers have figured out there's huge benefits to dealers, uh, traffickers down in Mexico from making synthetic drugs. The drugs also pose benefits to people, supposed benefits in quotations, to, to dealers on the street. That's so cheap, the supply is so plentiful, they can put it into drugs that they are selling, like cocaine or methamphetamine, and sometimes it's a rare thing, but sometimes occasionally marijuana perhaps. Um, but whatever the case, it, it's like this go-to kind of thing. And um, they know they know that if they get someone using fentanyl-laced cocaine or methamphetamine, what have you, that soon that person will be an opioid addict, a fentanyl addict. And an opioid addict is very different. He has to buy that drug every single day, whereas a cocaine user is going to be buying maybe every two or three times a week. Um, that's not the case. So it's all, it's, 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 it serves as a market expansion tool is what fentanyl is being used for now. And now what we're seeing, the new, I would say the newest thing is really what we're seeing is that nobody's under any, any, any illusions now that what they're buying is something other than fentanyl on the street. Hmm. You call it heroin, you call it whatever, there's going to be fentanyl in it. It's been that widely, the supply is that pr um, prodigious. Um, that it just can't, they, they, it's just in everything now. And every, that means, what does that mean? It means to me that we're at the end of recreational drug use. I mean, there's yes. no such thing anymore. Yes, I wanted to ask you what you meant by that, and, and you are describing that. But, but say more, if you'd like, about, 
about that statement? Well, you, you, no, at no, you, at no point when you are buying drugs on the street can you be sure that it doesn't have fentanyl in it anymore. It is, you know, it's just there's just too much of the stuff uh, out there, and every time you use fentanyl, it's a Russian roulette game you're playing. You, you remember uh, Michael K. Williams, the great, great actor uh, who died a few years, uh, a few uh, weeks ago. Yes, not um, long he, ago. Right. He he uh, he was uh, using cocaine. He thought, but of course, it included a fentanyl a fentanyl analog. The uh, the comics who died at Venice Beach at a party down in uh, in Venice Beach uh, about in early September, they thought they were using cocaine. Th there is no such thing as just a drug that you can kind of casually use anymore and think it'll be fine for the moment, and that's it. It's all got this this deep um, uh, 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 consequence, and. On top of that, the Mexican trafficking world has taken to making counterfeit um, pills, understanding that we have in this country a love affair with pills that a lot of people who are addicted to uh, opioid painkillers now can't find them as easily. And so what you're seeing now come up from Mexico is just a huge, huge, <laughs> millions upon millions of these pills that are, look like Percocets or Xanax or Adderall or oxycodone generic 30 milligram uh, blue pills. Uh, they don't include anything but f but fentanyl. And so almost anything, unless you are getting it from a pharmaceutical bottle that you bought at a pharmacy, there's no way of knowing that, that what you're about to take uh, won't kill you, and there's a very high likelihood that it will. We're talking with Sam Quinones. His new book is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the time of fentanyl and meth. And we'll get to the hope part after the break, but uh, what are your questions for Sam Quinones? What is your reaction to what you're hearing? You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Lisa asks, without the euphoria, what makes people want to keep taking meth? What is the new draw? You were mentioning earlier, and we're just coming up on a break, that uh, it is no longer creating that fun party atmosphere. And... Uh, Lisa wants to know, okay, if that's the case, why is it that people keep taking meth? It's a terrific question, and I think that this is going to take some neuroscience research to understand, but it's mm. true. Uh, Eric Barrera was that way as well. I, uh, the, the euphoria that I felt with ephedrine meth never um, uh, uh, returned, and yet I still could not keep using it. It's still very, very addictive. Yes, more after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the devastating impacts of highly potent synthetic street drugs with Sam Quinones, who's written a book about it called The Least of Us. Have you personally or has your family or community experienced the effects of meth and fentanyl? What are your questions for Sam? What are your thoughts on on how to address this synthetic drug epidemic? 866-733-6786, the number, email address forum at kqed.org. Let me go to Susan in San Rafael. Hi, Susan. Hi, and thank you very much. I couldn't agree more. Thank goodness somebody has written a book. I grew up in Imperial Beach in 1984, and I tried meth, of course. I was 17, 18, but I agree. Things have changed so much. I'm 55. I love my life. I have my MBA. I don't dabble in that, but I see um, family members almost dying from something that I don't understand. Fentanyl, I had a roommate overdose in my home, 24 years old, gorgeous girl, just like my daughter. The addiction is different. It has changed. Growing up so close to Mexico and sort of migrating to NorCal, San Anselmo, love it. But it's absolutely dangerous and my boyfriend has an identical twin who can't get off meth and he's homeless he's on the streets many 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 people and thank goodness for this book Mm. I'm so curious how to help I work for nonprofit organizations and recovery homes everything but this is different Oh, Susan, I'm so sorry for the extent to which it has affected you and Sam. Susan is, I think, asking a similar question that this listener is asking, who writes, how are drug counselors on the street shifting strategies to reach those who are addicted to these drugs? Are there effective treatments available? As Susan said, this is different. Yeah, you know, part of the problem is with methamphetamine is that there really is no treatment except for separation from the drug. There, I mean, uh, when you have an opioid addiction, um, you, there, are, there are medical treatments that, that, are, that are out there that, that can be very effective, um, keep you alive, in fact, and very, very effectively. Um, medically assisted treatment is uh, tried and true on this. Um, uh, methadone is one, Suboxone, another, Vibitrol. But with meth, there still is really no other, uh, nothing other than separation from the drug. Um, and and a time away from it, let it to let letting it heal your brain heal, I should say, and it's it's uh, and it's made even more uh, consequential because of the, the 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 stuff that is accompanying this this meth that's coming out of Mexico over the last eight or ten uh, or ten years because it's not just people staying up a long time, it's people in like I say florid schizophrenia and hallucinations that are vivid, vivid to these, to these folks. And of course, this is where our homeless encampments um, come from, on, on, uh, although a lot of people don't really care to talk about that. 
You mean just in terms of trying to reduce stigma against the unhoused, that there's less of an emphasis on the role of... Oh, I, I, I frankly okay. think there's almost no role. I, I mean, uh, I mentioned in, among mm -hmm. people who are really uh, uh, um, covering this issue, it's, it's a scary thing. And there's, there's absolutely no reason why I, a book writer should be the one to scoop this story. Nobody else has written about this. It's really remarkable to me. There's daily newspaper reporters who have been stepping over this story for years now, and nobody's ever written about it. Why is, why is it me, a book writer, whose books take three or four years to write, the one who's scooping it? And I think one of the reasons is that there is this very serious uh, self-censorship that goes on among a lot of reporters uh, and a lot of other folks in the housing and, and homeless advocacy who don't want to kind of uh, confront the realities and start talking about what is really going on inside, what is the real reason behind these homeless tent encampments and so on. To me, that's, that's, that's a, it, it, it struck me about as hard as the story itself. Like, why am I the one? But you check these, these stories, uh, check numer numerous uh, stories about homelessness in the California media, and it's a rare thing to find the word methamphetamine in any of them. Well, let me go to caller Jessica in Claremont now. Hi, Jessica. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for joining us. What's on your mind, Jessica? You know, I just wanted to highlight the way that this drug is also affecting our youth. I'm a school psychologist. My primary role is in the juvenile hall. And I see a lot of kids who are arrested that are addicted to particularly pills, which are really fentanyl. They don't realize it. They take them and they don't realize the impact. But further than that, unfortunately, my own son, who is a great kid, became addicted for the same reasons that our kids in the juvenile house do. And it was an incredible, you know, incredible battle that we had to fight and surmount. And I, I don't think that parents realize that this is not, you know, what, what kids did back in the day with experimenting with marijuana, which I'm not advocating for, but I'm saying that their brain really is changing when they use this drug and they're so vulnerable and they're so close to death. And I don't think parents realize it. And this drug is something that can destroy our youth. And we really need to be proactive. Um, it's not a matter of will. I think a lot of principals and teachers have had tons of conversations where I have to tell them, this is not will. Like, this is not if they just try harder, they can kick it. There's an actual brain change that is detrimental to their brain that's occurring, and people don't understand it. So like mm -hmm. Sam just said, I don't know why we're the first to be saying this. This is a pervasive problem across all cultures, races, socioeconomic education. It's everywhere. And I just think we really need to think about our kids. Yes. Well, Jessica, thank you for sharing the experience of your own son. I really appreciate it. Um, Sharon is asking a question here, Sam, that I, I think you touched on as well. I mean, Sharon asks, I don't understand dealers add fentanyl to increase the number of opioid addicts, but why do they want to kill off their customers? Won't there be a tipping point after which their businesses will tank? Can you talk about that calculus? Sure. It's, uh, there's actually, um, in quotation marks, very good reasons, business reasons, why you would add fentanyl to, to the mix. One of which is that you would, of course, as I said, increase the, the amount of uh, customers who buy more regularly for you. I think that's a very big one. And certainly early on, that was a main, main influence of people. Now I would say a lot of people are already on uh, addicted to fentanyl. Their tolerance is very high. Heroin will not, will not do it for them. And so any dealer who's perceived in that environment, who's perceived to be selling something that does not 
include fentanyl will soon have no, no customers. It's also important to understand, and this is, goes back to the heroin world of many years ago, it's been, been true for many years in the, among heroin users, that, that the, uh, an overdose death is not a warning. It's not a warning, it's an advertisement. And you see this frequently throughout, throughout the, the use of heroin and now into fentanyl. When someone dies, it's a, it's, an, it's, a, it's a sign to people who are addicted, this dealer is selling some very potent stuff, go get it. And this is, I've heard this so many times, it's not, uh, uh, it, it's dozens and dozens of times now that whenever there's an a, a overdose death, people, dealers now advertise uh, that fact. Now, I would say down in Mexico, um, people are so separated from the people that are finally going to be using their drug, they don't think, they're thinking about money and nothing else. It's a commercial uh, product and we're just going to sell it. We don't really pay any attention. On the streets, though, there's, there's a lot of kind of what you would say, quote unquote, good business reasons that a, a dealer might want to add fentanyl. And it's made possible, again, it's really important to get, the supply is the story here. It's made possible because it is so prevalent. It is so cheap. You could do it almost, on, put it into almost anything. So your cocaine has been stepped on five times since it got, since it came, uh, coming up from Columbia. Well, you add some, some fentanyl in and all of a sudden it's got a boost. Plus the guy will come back real quick to buy that stuff from you from you again methamphetamine uh i've found dealers tell me i can get double the metham my price from for methamphetamine with fentanyl in it than i can get with uh just straight fentanyl it's because nowadays we've reached a kind of normalization particularly under the in the very um addicted street drug community where anything that doesn't include fentanyl it, people aren't interested in it so those fentanyl test strips which you should use to test whether this drug, maybe my cocaine, has fentanyl and then not use that cocaine. Those fentanyl test strips are now being used to ensure, to make sure that what I'm about to buy has fentanyl in it because I'm a fentanyl addict now. And this is the truth all up and down, the, all across the United States. I was in Eastern Tennessee talking with a woman uh, for whom, who, was, who was just this way and, and, um, and gave, gave fentanyl test strips to her wholesaler who said who she would buy from the wholesaler and sell it to her friends. And she said, the next time you buy something, you go wherever you're buying it from, you test with these strips. We, we don't want anything that doesn't have fentanyl in it. So it's a different world now, as, mm -hmm. as a couple of your callers have said. I, I think you're answering actually caller Leo's question. Leo, you were wondering about testing for fentanyl. Yes, that's true. I, uh, that's exactly my question. Is there something available that people could, the users could test to see if there's yes. any fentanyl in it. How readily yes. available are these test strips? I would say it depends on the state, I think, really. But I think in a lot of states, they're fairly readily available. And, and they are very helpful if you are not addicted to fentanyl. They're, they're enormously helpful. I mean, you can, you can say, no, this doesn't have this in it. Okay, I, really, I don't think, you're, I, I don't think you can really trust anything anymore. But it's not a bad way of saying, okay, this probably doesn't have it, I guess. But the problem is, once you get to addicted to fentanyl, you don't want anything that doesn't have fentanyl in it. So those test strips become quality control measures. Well, this listener writes, I'm a father, entrepreneur, and volunteer as a youth minister at a local Marin church. The pills that the author is referring to are widely available online. I know of five kids in Marin that have died from fentanyl-laced right. imitation Percocet. I know exactly. of a mother who died this year from it. It is killing so many kids and adults. Where are the statistics? Where is the outrage? 
Is it possible to parse the data to know how many are dying of phantovirus? Um, I'm not I'm not aware of that, but I can tell you that there are family organizations. Often, I've known of one in in Los Angeles that that keeps some kinds of statistics among the best they can. This is another this is another outgrowth of the, of the enormous amount of supply that we are faced with out of Mexico right now. The, the, the suppliers uh, down in Mexico have solved the great conundrum facing drug dealers time immemorial. And that big question is, where do I get my dope? Where, who am I going to buy it from? This guy got arrested, this kind of thing. And now that's not, lot, not an issue. You can find it almost anywhere. Now the big question is, where can I sell my dope? Particularly during COVID, when... Uh, people were off the streets, and, and, and well, of course, what becomes the new street corner is Snapchat, uh, Instagram, TikTok, some gaming platforms, et cetera, a lot of things, things like this, where people go on anonymously with large menus, very colorful menus, look like kind of an ice cream kind of uh, uh, truck kind of menus, you know, uh, selling Percocets and, and all these stuff. None of these pills have anything but fentanyl in them, mm -hmm. and they're really uh, trying to sell to kids who don't have, uh, uh, they're online a lot under in COVID, they're all, all over the social media apps, and, and they're, they're, they're really not um, uh, 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 astute, they're not savvy about the drug world, so they, and these guys will, de will deliver. That's the only way you can get, get this product to these kids. So you get this, these folks on Snapchat, um, on Instagram, selling this stuff and saying, I'll deliver the pills to you. And, the, you know, it's a Percocet. They're, they're, these kids don't know what they're doing, and they end up dying. I went to a Snapchat uh, protest by parents in front of Snapchat headquarters in, 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 uh, in Santa Monica uh, in June, and all the, the, the parents brought these posters. Snapchat is implicit and complicit in my, my son or daughter's murder, and they all were from 2020. They were all kids for like 17, 14, 18, 20 years old and it was all this but that's what enormous quantities of supply do they push people to new inventive innovative ways in selling selling dope in social media apps or, or the new street corner and we're talking with sam quinones his new book is the least of us true tales of america and hope in the time of fentanyl and meth and you're listening to forum i'm mina kim what is the hope sam well, it's actually uh, about half of my book, and we only have a few more minutes left. But the idea was really um, to say, uh, uh, what is our best defense? And I believe it is really, um, as I believe during Dreamland, that what got us into this is that we have done so much to shred community in so many ways. We're so isolated. My feeling is now that what we need to do is move move towards community repair. And that is really why I filled half of the book with stories, uh, unnoticed, unsexy, people just doing quiet daily work in the, uh, on, on community repair. I filled with as many of these stories as I could find. I didn't want them to be big magic solutions. I thought that it was much more effective to say, we don't find real solutions when we're looking for some miraculous cure to all our problems. Rather, it's daily daily work. And, and, and I think that this is, um, this is happening right now, in fact. I mean, the, people say, well, that's, that's kind of how effective can that be? And I think it's the most effective thing. As a species, we evolved, we survived 
um, because we were in community. The guy in the, in the caveman, in the caves of you know, years, uh, prehistoric caves, people who would leave the cave and go off on their own, they died. They were immediately, we evolved to be community people. And the last 40 years, at least in America, we have decided we don't need that. We're too prosperous. We don't need that. We can, we can go do all these things that, that are isolated us and that kind of thing. And so that's why I began to focus on just community stories, not as a way of saying this is what you need to do in your, in your county, but rather to say this is the attitude that seems like it might help. Like, for example, a guy named Bird in Muncie, Indiana, in a very uh, deindustrialized neighborhood, very stressed neighborhood. The city was about to close the community center in that neighborhood. He lived right across the street from it. He had worked for it for a while. They go ahead and close it, but Bird keeps the key. And over the next several years, as the, as the neighborhood really is going through enormous stress from deindustrialization and dope at the same time, Bird keeps the key and opens it for the community. So whenever the kids need to play basketball, the older folks need to play cards, he opens it for them. He becomes a community unto himself. You know, and to me, this is, um, I, we could go on quite a bit longer on this, we don't have a few minutes left, but, but I wanted to say that this is really the attitude that I think is what, what, can, what can help us, our best defense, is this idea that we, we need to be out among each other. The pandemic taught us that too, you know, it taught, be out among each other, being part of a, of a neighborhood, part of a, of, of a street, and those are bulwarks against the problems that we are, start, we are talking about, about today. Those are the bulwarks, and we have shredded those bulwarks. We're all isolated, we all don't know each other, no one's out on the street, it's all this very vacant, sad-looking neighborhoods. And to me, that, that's why I filled the book, again, as I said, with as many stories of Americans quietly doing a community repair as I could find. And the movement has been towards decriminalizing drugs generally, what do you yeah. think is the solution for this? Well, I don't see decriminalization as a solution. The problem is the drug, that, that's an idea that might have worked a good number of years ago, but the problem is the drugs have changed. Our thinking hasn't changed. So the idea of you would leave somebody on the street who has um, got you know paraphernalia and stolen property, and clearly this person is in dire uh, distress because of this addiction to one of these two drugs we've been talking about. The last thing you want to do is leave that person on the street, for goodness sakes. It is not kindness. It is but not it's... mercy. It is, it, it is the, the, the opposite of compassion. It is callousness because that person is going to die if you leave them out there. So it's a whole other question of what we do about it because, uh, and we don't have any uh, much, a whole lot more time to sure. talk about it. But Happy to come back and talk about this stuff. But decriminalization, that's what COVID was. COVID was a big year long experiment in decriminalizing drugs and, and we saw the effect. It sounds like though where you would point the lens first is at supply. You've certainly stressed that, Sam. And sure. you've certainly shared a lot of very important stories. Thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sam Kinos. His book is The Least of Us. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to Susie Britton for producing this. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera, 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.